invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, the verses 5 and 6. Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The book of Proverbs is a, a practical book. It's, it's the most practical book in the Old Testament. It gives practical instructions, and it is called the James of the Old Testament. So when the author of the Proverbs writes, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. He is not just giving some kind of general, motivational, inspirational speech. He is giving practical instruction about how to live a successful life. There is a stretch of farm road southwest of Wichita Falls, Texas, that's very dangerous. There are a lot of sharp turns, curves, and there is a dangerous four-way intersection. On this farm road, several people have been killed. I've preached some funerals of some people who have been killed on this dangerous stretch of highway between Wichita Falls and Iowa Park. And somebody has come along at some time past and has erected some little white crosses along the way where these accidents have occurred and these fatalities have occurred as a kind of warning. And if you go along that way and you see these little white crosses, you automatically take a little bit firmer grip on the steering wheel and you let off a little bit on the accelerator and you be a little more careful about driving. The Christian life is a lot like that. In fact, God is so concerned that we have a safe trip that he has erected some little white crosses in the Bible to remind us of where others have crashed and burned. And that's why the Bible is so brutally honest, is because God is showing us in the failures of others these places where we need to be watchful lest it happen to us. And so he doesn't cover the flaws of his heroes. He paints them just like they are as a reminder of the dangers of the trip. And so you have, in brutal honesty, the adultery of David and the lies of Abraham and the deceit of Jacob and the anger of Moses and the cowardice of Simon Peter because God is so concerned that our trip is a safe one. Now he says that he will uh, direct our paths. But if you have a New American Standard translation of that, it is he will make our paths straight. What's the difference? I think that the translators of the new translation want us to see that this divine guidance is not God standing somewhere pointing out how to get where we're going. He's much more involved than that. He's out in front of us making paths straight. And that's the way you kind of know if this is the way God wants you to go. Is He out in front making paths straight 
Or is he out there putting up barriers? Now before I get to, you know, to uh, kind of break this text up a little bit, I want us to look at something that wants to be noticed. It's kind of like a little boy in class who has the answer and he can't wait until the teacher notices him. And there is something in this text that just demands to be noticed as this, that this promise is a conditional promise. God is saying, I'm willing to do this if you will do this. And so God is saying, I'm willing to go out in front of you on this trip and make paths straight on the condition that I'm going to establish for you. And when you meet that condition, then I will fulfill my promise. And this promise is based upon the condition. Now I want to give you something. I want you to forget. I want you to keep it longer than, you know, about the kickoff time today. And this is the thing I want you to get. I want you to write it down because I'm going to come back to it in a minute. It's this. That divine guidance is a revelational response to man's obedience. Divine guidance is a revelational response to man's obedience. Now what I'm saying is this. That upon your obedience, God gives divine guidance. Now, I think there are some of us who are kind of predisposed to a kind of hyper-Calvinism. And hyper-Calvinism says that whatever God wants to be, He'll make it be, regardless. And there is an element of truth in that. Whatever will be, will be. Sound like a song. There is an element of truth in that. But it is also true that God will allow you to fail. And He will allow you to make a mistake. He will allow you to miss the point of life, if that's your choice. Here's a young lady who might say, Well, I know this guy I'm going out with. He's not a believer. He doesn't hold values that I hold. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in God. But if God doesn't want us to be together, if God doesn't want us to get married, He'll block the way. That, my friend, is wrong. God will allow you to make a mistake. The psalmist said that He gave them the desires of their heart and sent leanness to their souls. What He was saying is this, God says, okay, that's what you want, even though it's not what you need or what is best. I'm going to let you have it and you'll suffer the consequences. And the Jews, Israel, cried out for a king. They said, give us a king. And God said, we don't, you don't need a king. All you need is me. And they said, well, every other nation has a king. want a king. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them Saul and generations of misery. Now it is true that if you want the will of God, God's will will be done and nothing will ever stop that or thwart that. And yet it is just as true that you and I must meet the God-ordained conditions for receiving His will or we will miss it. Don't ever mistake, make that mistake. God will not pick you up like a puppet and turn you around. He will allow you to crash and burn. If that's your choice, He will allow you to get off the track. Now, this divine guidance hinges upon 
two great truths. The first truth is this, that there is a divine principle by which we must live. A divine principle by which we must live. Now this is the divine principle by which we must live. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now the good news I have for you this morning is this, that God wants you to trust Him. And He does everything He can do to get you to trust Him. But trusting God is the hardest lesson we have to learn. It's probably the final lesson. For there is something about the fallen nature of man that causes him to trust, to not trust in God, to trust himself. And he kind of trusts God as a last resort. Does that sound like anybody you know? It is part of the fallen nature to never trust God until we absolutely have to. Now that may explain the human history of your life. It may explain why things are happening to you the way they're happening. God may be orchestrating the events of your life just to get you to trust Him because He knows He want, you want until you have to. This word trust is an interesting word. It, wor it means literally to lie helplessly upon. It means literally, watch this, the word trust there means to lie helplessly face down upon the ground. Now here's what God is saying. He's saying, I want you to lie helplessly face down upon me. I want you to lie helplessly upon me so that the man of faith does not have a visible means of support. He has an invisible means of support. You ever watch these guys on television, these magicians? And here's this woman, always a good-looking woman, and she's lying there in suspended in air. And they get these big rings, and they run them you know, back and forth, no strings, no uh, nylon, you know, holding the strings, holding the... How do they do that? I mean, invisible means of support. Now, what God is saying is this. I'm not pulling any magic tricks, but if you'll just lie helplessly upon me, I will sustain what the word lean means. Two things about this word trust. We must trust Him earnestly with all our heart, now that's more qualitative than it is quantitative. It's not like saying, I'm a man of faith, so I trust the Lord with my business and I trust the Lord with my family. It's more qualitative than that. It's not partial. It's not, I trust the Lord with my finances, I trust the Lord with my family, but I've got a lot of worries over it. It's not, I trust Him here, but I can't trust Him there. I worry there. It's not partial, and it's not temporary. It's not that I trust Him today, and I tr lean on Him now, but tonight I wake up in the middle of the night, and I am frantic with worry and fear, and tomorrow I take matters back in my own hands. It means that every fabric and fiber of my being rests helplessly upon Him. It means to seek Him or trust Him earnestly. 
It means to trust Him exclusively and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, not leaning on your understanding is the negative way of, lean, of saying that I'm going to lean helplessly upon Him. It's the same thing. If one says positively, I'm trusting everything to God, the other saying, I'm not trusting in myself at all. In fact, the Living Bible has it. Never trust in yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. The biggest mistake I make in the Christian life is trying to measure circumstances and life by my understanding of circumstances and life. Now listen to me carefully. The reason why it is so hard for us to lie helplessly upon Him is because we depend too much upon our understanding, our knowledge, and you can never lie helplessly upon Him until you jettison your knowledge and throw overboard your understanding. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I am not saying that reason and faith are in conflict. G. Campbell Morgan says, Reason and faith, faith does not conflict with reason. It goes beyond reason. That's what I believe. Now, there are some preachers who would tell you that reason and faith are in conflict. My brother is a scientist, and he's kind of become disillusioned with Christianity, to be honest with you, and especially organized religion. And I've tried to analyze, he's older than I am, I tried to analyze uh, what happened to him because I remember when he was profoundly converted. He was working on his PhD, so he wasn't a kid when he was saved. But somewhere along the way, he became disillusioned, and I think I know when it happened. He was living in Tennessee, and he somehow got involved in a church where the preacher talked about scientists as though all scientists were atheists. This was his phrase, these atheistic scientists. <laughs> he just threw that out every time he talked about science. And my brother assumed that the Christi Christianity, that Christians think that there is a conflict between knowledge and faith. There is not. And a preacher who would say that there is, if he drew a bar graph on what he was saying, then he would. this would be the graph. Reason would go in one direction and faith would go in the other. I believe that they go in the same direction, but faith goes farther than reason. You better believe that too. Because there is coming a point in your life, everybody's life, where his understanding and perception and knowledge ceases. Um, what are you going to do if you don't have faith when the unexpecteds happen? Out in Los Angeles, folks went to bed just like they always do on Sunday night, last Sunday night, but at 4 o'clock in the morning they got out of bed not like they always do. I mean, they got thrown out of bed. And these poor people out there in that terrible situation, all of a sudden, their earth shook and they shook. 
and they fell out of bed. One said it was like being in a car cardboard box with somebody kicking the stuffing out of it. Wasn't exactly stuffing he used, but you get the point. Now, I was sitting in a lobby of a hospital uh, for it, that everybody can hold on to. Where do you go from there? For faith is that which keeps on going when we fell out of bed. One said it was like being in a car cardboard box with somebody kicking the stuffing out of it. Wasn't exactly stuffing he used, but you get the point. Now, I was sitting in a lobby of a hospital uh, the other Monday morning talking to, to a member of our church whose husband is seriously ill. And we were sitting there looking at, you know, just talking and glancing at this television that was on, describing the Holocaust of Los Angeles. And she bowed her head and said softly, I guess my, own, my life is not the only life that's been turned upside down. Now let me ask you this question. When you come to that point in your life, where reason and knowledge and logic stops, what happens to you then? Did you see that cartoon of, of Charlie Brown's on the pitching mound talking to the catcher? They're getting clobbered. So he says to Schroeder, we're getting clobbered. I don't know why I have to suffer. And Schroeder says, well, man is born in trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward quoting scripture. And, and he looks at him like he was an alien from another planet. And then she interrupts, and what about Job's wife? I don't think she gets enough credit. And Linus says, well, I don't think that anybody is really mature unless he suffers. She says, good grief, Linus. Nobody wants to suffer. Get real. Pigpen throws in his two cents. He says, well, the world is full of pain. And Schroeder says, well, if all you understand about the book of Job is patience, then you don't know much about the book. And the next caption, there's Charlie Brown standing there dejectedly and kind of sighs and says... I don't have a baseball team. I've got a theological seminary. Now, now, let me tell you this. Trot out your theological seminary. You bring them all in this room. Bring the seminary in this room and explain to me why there is such suffering in the world. You explain to me why the tragedies of life occur. And when you get through, when you get to the end of your explanation and you don't have an answer for it that everybody can hold on to, where do you go from there? For faith is that which keeps on going when reason runs out of logic and out of gas. And so, Luca, so uh, Lucado tells about a little boy who ran back in a burning house, ran upstairs to get something. Now he's trapped. And he comes to the window and he cries to his daddy to save him. He can't. So he says, jump, Jimmy, jump. 
And the little boy says, I can't see you, Daddy. It's too much smoke. And the daddy says, it's all right, Jimmy. I can see you. Jump. Now, faith is that which comes to the place where we can't see anymore. We can't perceive any, uh, anymore. We can't understand anymore. And it just keeps on going. For trusting in the Lord means that I'm not going to rely on my understanding. There's a second thing. I notice there's a bigger crowd here today since it's not the Cowboys who have the early kickoff. I've noticed that. Second thing. This successful life hinges on not only a divine principle by which I live, but a daily practice by which I live. Now watch this. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That word all in the Hebrew, you know what it means? It means all. In all your ways, manner of life, everything you do, wherever you are, every area, area and every aspect of your life, you acknowledge Him. The word acknowledge means to see or to recognize. Now watch this. Here's the daily practice. Every day of my life, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I see and recognize God in it. It destroys the myth that God is in the sanctuary, but He's not in the market. It destroys the myth that God is concerned about my spiritual, the spiritual part of my life, if I say my prayers or pay my tithe, but he didn't care, couldn't care less if I've got a, a, a bill I can't pay or a boss I can't work for or a boy I can't control. It's saying that God is not cloistered in some ivory tower, that He is woven into every moment of your life if you can but see Him. Acknowledging Him says, I see you not in this situation, in this moment. If I can't see Him, I say, God, I know you're there. Help me see you. It means that I develop a God perspective on life, that my life is lived with regard to how it's going to affect Him. It means that I begin to take the gifts that I've been given and I use them within the sphere of His will. If I've been given the ability to sing, my question is, how can I glorify God with my voice? If I've been given the ability to make money, how can I glorify God with my possessions? If I've been given the ability to administrate, how can I use that administration to bring glory to God? If I have been given sorrow... How can I use this sorrow to glorify Him? It's to take everything that God has given us and use it within the sphere of His will. It means that I recognize God in the home, that He is the final authority, unseen guest at every meal. And I see my children as, as investments that God has placed as a stewardship in my life, these gifts that I am to nurture and to care for and to train. It means that I see God in my work. I believe that the, that the 
Christian ought to be the best employer and the best employee, and that all the work I do should be as unto the Lord. So Paul went to the slave and said, give everything you've got to that master of yours, even though he's vicious and brutal. And at school, I turn him the best work, not because I want to make an A, but because I understand that, a, that, that it's required of me to do the best and present the best because I recognize God in my business. Have you ever thought that, that, that this young carpenter of Nazareth, I bet he had a waiting list a mile long. I bet everybody wanted yoke, a yoke made by this boy. Somebody said that when he made a yoke in the carpenter shop, it was a yoke that heaven would have accepted and never chafed or brutalized the oxen who wore it because everything he did, he did as unto the Father. It means that this recreational life of mine, I recognize God there. And it may seem you know, innocent to me, but what I'm doing, is it going to... Is it going to cause a broken relation? Can I pray and do this? Can I have a walk with God and do this? It's to recognize that God is in the sanctuary and in the shop. That God is recognized not just on Sunday where I have to put on a face, but I live my life altered with regard to Him when on Monday I go into my business not just when people are looking at me, but in my private moments, I see God and recognize Him. Now, it has to do also with how I treat others. Jesus said, if you're going to look for me, you need to look for me in the lives of other people. Anthony Campola has what he calls, watch this, religious humanism. Got him in trouble with some fundamentalist. Religious humanism, he called it. Now his idea of religious humanism is this, that God is in every life. In, the, in a child, he said... If you've done it to the least of these, you can make Campola said one day he was waiting for a plane to come and get him on the grassy airstrip in Haiti. And a woman came up with a baby, bloated and mal had been malnourished, brown, dingy hair, evidence of poor nutrition. This baby was almost already dead. And, and she went up to him and she said, take my baby, take it with you, take it, raise it please don't let my baby die. He turned away because there are thousands of babies like that baby. And she was pulling on his clothes and begging him, please don't let my baby die. And she began to raise her voice, making a scene, please take my baby back to America. Don't let him die. And he said, I was hoping the plane to hurry and get here. He said, the plane landed out there and I started toward the plane. I thought I'd get away from her. She chased me. And she's screaming by now over the roar of the plane, please don't let my baby die, please. And she's hanging on, and I'm in to fight her off. He said, I got up on the, to get inside the plane and shut the plexiglass door, and she's banging on it, begging and pleading. 
He told, he said, I told the, the pilot, get us out of here. He said he revved up the engine and started down the runway. He said, she's chasing us now, and she's running, screaming. Now she's using curse words, and she's screaming, please don't let my baby die. And he said, as we took off, he said, there was a silence in that cab, that, that plane. We all, he said, me and the pilot, we both were stunned by what we'd witnessed. And as we looked back and saw this speck just fade out of sight, we knew that we had left Jesus there. Acknowledging him means that I see him in the suffering of this world. Now I want you to go back with me, and I'm almost through. Watch this. I want you to go back with me to that statement I made. I didn't want you to forget. Divine guidance is a revelational response to human obedience, to man's obedience. If you are not sensing divine guidance, it is not because God doesn't want to guide you. It's because you are not obedient. Some area of your life, you're not obedient. You know what it is? Jimmy Carter's autobiography, he tells about going to speak to a group in a little bitty town smaller than Plains about they're fixing to have a revival meeting. He's trying to rev them up, get them ready to witness, and et cetera. And he said, I was looking back over my life and I remembered that I, I, I'd li- I witnessed to at least 1,200 people about Jesus Christ. And he said, I was going to share that with these men. You never, you, you ne- you never get too busy to witness for Christ. But he says, I was getting ready to tell those people about the 1,200 witnesses I've made. I remember that in three months' time when I was running for governor, I made 300,000 calls for myself. In 14 years, I witnessed to Jesus Christ 1,200 times. In three months, for myself, I made 300,000 calls. I think most of us live by the Burger King syndrome. You know that, don't you? Have it your way. The problem is, you can't always have it your way and His way. And here's where the rubber meets the road. And here's where the water hits the wheel. That divine guidance is a revelational response to human obedience. And the Christian faith is based upon an unqualified, unconditional obedience to Jesus Christ. So C.S. Lewis was right when he said, if you're looking for a comfortable religion, I don't recommend Christianity. And Phelan was right when he said, you can't be half a Christian. And E. Stanley Jones was talking to a young man in India who had converted from from the Brahma religion, but he was going back and worshiping at the uh, the altars of Brahma, the the Brahmian altars. And he said to him, what's the matter with you, man? Haven't you been converted? He said, yes, I've been converted, but not that far. It was said that when St. Francis of Assisi gave everything to God, silver and soul, then he started dancing in the streets. And Sam Shoemaker said, there comes a point in everybody's life where he must make a choice between two pains. The pain of a divided mind or the pain of a crucified self. Some of you have come to that point this morning where it is a decision. Am I willing to be obedient? Unqualified, 
unconditionally obedient to God. And I love that illustration of Alexander the Great. His horse ran away. And the private came, chased the horse, pursued it, and caught it, and brought it back to Alexander. And Alexander said, Thank you, Captain. Private, thank you, Captain. And in one word, Alexander the Great promoted a private to a captain. And he believed it. He went to the quartermasters and got a new uniform with the captain's stuff on the shoulders. And he went to the officer's mess and got him a, and started eating the officer's food. And he went to the officer's barracks and changed and got him a bed because the general said it. He believed it. Now the general has said it. I will direct your paths. If you will trust in me with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding and acknowledge me in everything you do. He said it. Please, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've offered to us today. Glorious and awesome is this offer. And glorious and awesome is the responsibility that's on us to decide if we're willing to meet the conditions to receive it. Give us that courage, I pray, to say yes. For I ask in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. I invite you this morning to come to Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Begin to follow Him. Give Him your life. Unconditionally, give Him your life. In obedience this morning, to place your life and join our church. Place your life here. Are there some area of your life where you're disobedient to God? Give Him that area of your life. He'll give you His guidance as a result. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.